Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our public conversations, how we can better engage with people different from ourselves and better understand each other. Every episode I speak to someone involved in public debates, from comics to journalists, politicians to novelists, actors to archbishops, and ask them what they hold sacred and what they've learnt along the way. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Rick Samada, who's a journalist, actor, presenter and author. He rose to public prominence writing Inspect a Gadget, the weekly kitchen gadget column with a cult following in The Guardian, and now writes weekly about wellness trends. He's also the author of I Never Said I Loved You, a memoir about depression, published in August 2019. We spoke about the impact of childhood racism, taking a non-traditional path into journalism, and the pain and privilege of writing about mental health. I really hope you enjoy listening. Rick, I'm going to ask you the most difficult question, I hope, of the whole podcast. We can get it over with, um, which is still, after 40-odd episodes, slightly poorly defined. It's about your deep values, your deep principles. We call them sacred values, things you live by, things that you feel a strong instinctive sense of kind of compromise or, ugh, you know, that ick factor when they're pressed on. Do you have any idea what yours are? I was thinking about this with my friend the other night, and I was thinking the thing that, if it was taken away, what would I feel most compromised by? And we came up with food and shelter, but then I think we realised that I just don't know what values are, and that's probably <laughs> not the right answer. Uh, so I thought some more, and I was thinking it's something to do with, and I've never really articulated this, so it will come out basically right. as gibberish. Well, the sort of pilot light that I always have inside me is this kind of this sense that there is no objective truth or reality, at least not one that we can grasp. Yeah, and a, a sort of instinctive kicking against any sort of dogma or anyone telling me how things are, which is a problem in the media because it's sort of entirely built of people telling you how things are or asking you to tell people how, what, what things are. And I was like, I don't know, you probably don't know either, um, but that's interesting. But um, that sort of, I guess, ultra-rational secular need for certainty and conviction in every in all things i just i find very mysterious and doesn't speak to me at all so i i go very much the other way and lean into abstractions and paradoxes and question mystery yeah sweet sweet mystery is my sacred value (laughs) you're listening to reefer chat (laughs) (laughs) Do do you have a sense of how far back that goes because one of the bits in your book that really stuck with me is you're going off to study philosophy because you thought it would be what was it naked youths and old guys riddling each other in some yeah. sort of greek gym yeah uh, and it wasn't that how much was pre your philosophy degree and how much did your philosophy degree mean that your you know trust in the ability to access absolute truth was undermined i think it comes from my family we're very out of sort of fish out of water out of place people. There weren't many of us. My parents came here from India. Uh, my dad came in the mid sixties, and my mum came in nineteen seventy nine. And then I was born. And so we don't have roots here or tradition. I'm aware that there's a homeland that I don't know. So that's there's a distance and a mystery there. And then the ways of this land um, are mysterious to me. If you don't, if you're not bought, what am I trying to say? I guess. My mother is a very eccentric person and everything she does is is made up in her own way, whether it's 
cooking or relating to people or just the way she crosses the street. It's like no one, I've, I've never seen anyone do that things that way before. And so I sort of grew up with that sense of seeing someone making things up every day for the first time as if she didn't know what anything was. Like an alien that had just landed here. And, and at the, when I was a child, that was horrific to me because I only wanted to fit in. And I was like, why can you not just be normal like everyone else and just do things the way they're meant to be done and just, I guess, be in the system? And she just absolutely wasn't. And, and now that I'm older, I really, I have that very much alive in me too. That sense of not being in the system, not feeling the need to count out a convention or career pressure or sense of other people's expectations I don't they don't really weigh on me at all and I feel that's I think that's such a gift and a blessing and that came from my childhood yeah uh tell me a bit more about your childhood and particularly if there were any kind of political or philosophical or religious ideas in the air I know there was that there was a Hinduism at least on, on your mum's side is that right a Hinduism. That doesn't make any sense. There was a Hinduism. There was some, there was some Hinduness around. <laughs> we kept the Hindu in the kitchen. There was Hinduism, but she also wanted to be a nun. So I, I was aware from a very young age that religion was both important, but um, <laughs> I guess now I'd say, well, I, that's where I sort of picked up this kind of syncretistic pick and mix sort of. There are many paths to the higher truth approach but when I was young I was just like oh you can sort of just be interested in loads of different things and they can all speak to you really powerfully and actually compel you in different ways but and even though people have always said these things are mutually exclusive it's your life they don't have to be you can do whatever you want so Catholic nun she wanted to be and uh, my par- parents were culturally Hindu we went to pujas but they never forced it on me I sort of went and I was interested and I liked the sort of Technicolor aspect of it, all the kind of Mahabharata and the epics and the Indian gods are fascinating to me. But there was also that kind of darkness of Kali the Destroyer and um, universes that are destroyed and remade and big ideas that I found quite scary and I knew I wasn't ready for them and I wanted to look at other faiths mm. to find more, the easier stories to get into. And then, but that, yeah, that sense of interest in all different forms of faith has always been with me i feel like hinduism is an area that i really have a felt ignorance around and i'd love to know more about but my real encounter was it was staying in kolkata and kali is the you know the local deity of kolkata mm. and so my associations with religious practice in that time were, were generally quite scared the sense of you know there's obviously more complexity there and i'd love to have someone who's more of a you know i'd love to talk to some experts about it but that it's funny i feel like every religion wrestles with death in a different way doesn't it and i'm yeah my mother tongue is christianity and the cross is right at the center and we can't understand you know can't pretend that christianity is not interested in death it's very interested in death and resurrection and uh you know what comes after but it was quite a shock to me to feel that sense of cultural difference of how differently kali and that element of hinduism mm. um deals with death and kind of strength and violence in more of a celebratory way than I'd ever encountered. Yeah, it's such a strange idea in this sort of in this cultural context to encounter those sort of images and like necklaces of skulls and like severed heads with like their tongues falling out and just this kind of grim glee of death and the necessity of it and but also these were venerated figures and they were terrifying to me and we had pictures of them on the walls. I was like what, what does that mean? Is that that looks bad is that not bad is that good is death good is violence and savagery and decapitation 
good thing. I, it was odd. What's interesting, you were talking about university because I did try to study a module of Indian philosophy at UCL, which is a very traditional canonical university in Western, and, and it, it just didn't feel like a good fit. And I thought, I was aware that if I came to an exam situation, there wasn't this whole cultural grounding of knowing how things would be marked and what answers I was sort of meant to give. And perhaps I should have been brave and just said, well, this is virgin territory. I can say whatever I feel. But I thought, no, this is untested water and it's, this is not the place for that. This is not the right context for that. those ideas. Exams aren't generally no. good creative spaces, are they? Yeah, so I just went with induction and Hume and, you know, all the sort of white bread potato sort of philosophy <laughs> that they were trying to teach us and, and left all, a lot of the sort of continental existential stuff and Eastern philosophy and even language stuff. But I thought I wouldn't be able to make a good showing of myself. Or just didn't... I knew it wasn't the time, like an exam wasn't the time to explore those ideas. Yeah. You talk beautifully in the book about about death and a, a fear of death and a interest in, you know, preoccupation with death. And interest makes it sound like a hobby, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, woodwork and death yeah. are my two hobbies. Yeah, and really, are kind of searching for meaning, and and it sounds like you really didn't find that in a philosophy degree. What led you then into acting and to this bizarre context of the drama centre, which was a very sense of acting as vocation? Yes, so I had a very well. I sort of did a complete. I was going to say three sixty, but that would mean I was facing the same direction, wouldn't it? <laughs> I did a complete one eighty degrees, yeah. and realised that maybe the meaning I was looking for wasn't in books and learning and exams, that it resided in the body somehow and in feeling and emotion. And I'd always wanted to be an actor, but uh, I'd never seen anyone that looked like me on TV when I was young, so it didn't seem viable and realistic, so I didn't. But then I thought, no, you should explore whatever you're, you're interested in, even if it's not viable or realistic, especially not. So I went to drama school, and I remember asking around what was the best drama school I could go to for someone like me who was who felt out of place everywhere and didn't was a misfit and an oddball and everyone said drama center is this place where they really they value those qualities they I mean they sort of almost fetishize them they love kind of outsiders and people that have got either some edge to them or some unhappiness or some sort of malcontent energy running through them and they try and harness that you do. Just, I mean, it's a fascinating description and hilarious. A, a kind of a madrasa for uh, damaged people, really. And but in the sense of like, I, I, from page to page, I couldn't work out if you were drawing a positive or a negative portrait. Oh, it good. was a well, really that, interesting. That's the ambivalence I'm always trying to go for in everything in life. I'm, I'm sure that's not what they say on the prospectus. <laughs> madrasa for damaged people. Yeah, but there was a sense. Pay up your fees. <laughs> will be £15,000. Certainly in the olden days of the school, there was a sense, though, that those rawness and unpolished bits of a... Most actors are very charming and they're sort of smooth and fluid and articulate. And this wasn't that place. This was a place that took people that didn't fit into society and you know, people that... I mean, a guy that... When I was there, there was a guy who was on heroin, so we had to hold him up during our rehearsals and there was people that end up in prison afterwards or been to prison before and then me there hoping still looking for the greek gymnasium with the 
youth and the old people riddling each other. It's a really strange and age-diverse, culturally diverse place. And there was a real valuing of those kind of, yeah, unpolished, raw personalities and the idea that they might have access to a kind of authenticity and truth, which is sort of everything in acting. And they were known for producing a certain type of actor who was not always the easiest to work with, but was and was often quite self-destructive, but was often also capable of incredibly moving, unique performances that couldn't have come from anywhere else. Yeah, this beautiful section where you're talking about them basically saying, you know, think of the most traumatic thing that's happened to you and, like, go into that pain. And you say something about, you know, I won't quote you your exact words, but something about an almost messianic role, you know, to feel in order to help other people feel and, you know, to, like, you know, almost cannibalise pain as a, as a kind of therapeutic act for wider society, which has really stuck with me in terms of what the role of artists in general are. And as you've been writing this book about your journey with mental health, how much is that part of what you've been doing? And do you think that is a good thing for people to aspire to now? Or is there something problematic in it? <laughs> I'm sure there is something problematic in it as there is something problematic in everything <laughs> but for me and that's really all I can speak to finding something to do with pain has been incredibly meaningful to me as a way of finding peace with myself and my past and as a way of connecting to other people I think those are all I mean there's those are the only things you can really try for I think or they're what feel adjacent to me in terms of what I want they're the things that I try and aim for yeah but I mean particularly with acting but yeah you're right with all art but particularly with acting there's a sense that acting is entertainment particularly in our culture and they're sort of these glamorous figures that we look at sort of figures of envy and they're really good looking we like to look at them and we like to be in their company in whatever way that is and and actually, that's not what acting is. Acting is a sort of playing out of our collective dream and trying to angle towards what the stories we like to tell in our particular moment, what they mean and what they're about. And acting is an incredibly valuable and dangerous profession. And it's become quite sanitized and bowdlerized and sort of just a system of PR and advertising. But, you know, at its heart, it's... It's the embodiment of the human story. And that's incredibly vital and thrilling to me. Make it sound almost priestly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you can just leave that hanging, that's fine. Um, I, can't, I, don't, I think there's I don't, too much vanity in it for to be priestly, sadly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know enough priests to <laughs> say they're thoughts? not devoid of... <laughs> entirely devoid of vanity. Um, I, I don't want to miss a big step in the story, but what I'm going to do is jump ahead and then circle back up around this thread of what role we are different types of people play in public conversations because one of the reasons I got interested in this theme is started right back when I was studying English and history um, and looking at the way theatre in particular sits in its cultural context and the way the arts and the media in particular frame the world for us and tell us the story of ourselves and you know who we are and what we should be and I'm going to reference 
at least one incredibly lowbrow thing, which is I've been watching um, The Bold Type on Amazon, which is basically set in Cosmopolitan magazine. And it's just like three ballsy millennial feminists, you know, taking over the city. I mean, it is trash. <laughs> um, but when I'm so tired from work, it's exactly what I need. But they're right in that moment of... Um, confessional journalists write, writing about their experience and there's always this tension between how much it's actually healthy for them and how much it's just the machine taking their lived experience and kind of offering up to the god of the algorithm um, and how much where it might be psychologically helpful for the readers to to hear experiences that other people have had and make them feel less alone what it does to the writers and there's a, a line I'm skipping ahead but I'll come back <laughs> about you working at the Guardian and when you first put in columns up and you said something like you and other writers feeling like you were basically clay pigeons and you know, <laughs> you know shot out into the universe to be shot down and that that was part of what you were doing almost the the negative comments underneath were part of it mm. um where are you on that now and how how it how for those who it is part of their calling to play that role in public conversations can do it in ways that are kind of healthy and humane. So for people that want to write about. Yeah. Like, does it have to be, like, is, is there almost a kind of self, self-sacrificial, is there an offering of yourself? Is that why it feels vocational? Because there's so much sacrifice? Or can it be done in ways that have, and is that okay? Or can, does it, do, do there need to be healthier boundaries and... How much is about the the writer's agency versus you know who's got the power? No, it's. I mean, it's something I struggle with. It's completely unresolved for me. It's sort of I work with my life and my experiences and my very subjective and unqualified experience on all manner of things and and offering yourself up perpetually and sort of systematizing yourself is a really strange position. I suppose it is a balance everyone has to find for themselves because I try to be vulnerable in my writing and really bring myself rather than just a performative shielded self and say things that I know might not go down well or be part of the I guess the received opinion or things that we like to see reflected back at us ways of thinking like that Um, but I it does cost yeah especially if you don't know why you're doing it or if there's an end point which is why writing a book has been so satisfying because it's it's giving all that a shape rather than just being this conveyor belt of weekly expression into a void mm-hmm. where people can shoot you down or ignore you at least this is an object that i will have i've concretized something i can keep it close to me even if it means nothing to anyone else like that that pain in a lot of cases or just that spirit has been moulded and shaped and um, so that's meaningful to me in a book but yeah in terms of journalism I, I don't know if it is worth it to be honest it's a very laudable and valuable thing but it's the price for me the price of it is so high just the kind of personal comments and I've done very i've been spared a lot people are really really incredibly nice to me almost all the time but i know particularly women or they're asian or just people of color that write just have a horrendous time i just think is it worth it to put your head above the parapet i think for me it's i don't know how it would be for them just that i've seen sort of 
some of their timelines and their mentions. It's just, yeah, I don't know what to tell them, I think. I really don't have an answer to that. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to come back to writing about mental health specifically and how that all connects with that. But first, I'd love you to talk about how you got into journalism because it was not by the traditional route, um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm not sure there is one anymore, but we certainly used to think people might go to Oxbridge and then, you know, start as a junior on the Times or something. You were acting for uh, a long time and then wanting to act and not acting um, and then randomly started temping at The Guardian. What, what happened next? Uh, well, I did temping for a little while and then... Uh, I wasn't very good at that, and then I got demoted uh, from the bottom rung to uh, counting chairs. It was I'm not sure why. I was just told to count ch the chairs in the building every hour for more than a week. So I'd just walk around the building with a, with a blueprint, like I was casing the joint for a robbery, and I'd mark down who was sitting in their chairs and which chairs were empty, and, and it became a sort of game. People would sort of run back to their desks when they saw me coming and... <laughs> If I was taking a register and they'd ask me, what, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I don't know. This is just a, the Kafkaesque nightmare that is my life. Um, but then it would, only, it would only take me a few minutes to do this, this round. And then I'd have to sit in the windowless cubicle for 50 minutes until the next hour rolled around. Uh, I think, I guess it was an occupancy survey to see what the, the dynamic of the building was. How much desk they need. But I... <laughs> But I started going a bit mad because it's after sort of three or four days of this, just this endless repetitive task. I didn't know what it was for and was had sort of layer of absurdity to it. Uh, so I sent an email to the entire <laughs> Guardian saying a lot of you don't know, a lot of you have asked what I'm doing. And the fact is, I don't know. I assume you're all going to lose your jobs. <laughs> Uh, which was not an appropriate use of the communications channel, I was later told. <laughs> and they said, well, as long as it doesn't get out of the building, let's just try and draw a line under this. It was a kind of humorous, satirical, like classically Rick email by the sound of it. <laughs> yes, of. let's call it that. That sounds <laughs> much more... <laughs> yeah, that sounds better than I was just unravelling, yeah. <laughs> it seems. Yeah, but it got printed in private eye. Uh, so I really th oh, I thought, well, I've just screwed my only means of income now due to, through to this this due to this imp of the perverse sort of self-sabotaging need to just do the thing I'm not meant to and I thought oh this is really bad but there was a particular editor at the Guardian who was uh, also quite a maverick spirit and had a reputation for he liked to commission people that couldn't write and had no business being in journalism and sort of try and make them journalists so he sort of took me under his wing and said have you ever written and I well, I've written emails, you've seen <laughs> I've that. I've written that email that got in private, <laughs> yeah. I said practically published anyway. Yeah, so I'm a published author, as you can see. But I, I hadn't really written before. And he started giving me little jobs. I think it was sort of a, a kind of a situationist prank on his behalf. And for me, it was like a valuable means of getting 50 quid here and there to pay my rent. And then he actually liked what I was writing. And I discovered I liked something in the writing, in the act of writing, even though the abuse could get was sort of soul-destroying. There was something about the creation itself that was a new type of expression. And I, it spoke to me. And yeah, so I, I kept doing it. I'm, st I'm still doing it, but I don't think of myself as a journalist. And I think I have no business being in any sort of <laughs> professional job at all. Why not? I don't, really f I don't really feel like a person. I don't feel... Why not? 
Well, there's a depressing answer and a maybe a sort of more mysterious answer. Let's have both. Okay, well, the depressing answer is uh, I learned from a very young age that uh, I was never going to be the smartest or best looking or most valid person in any room and that I had no I was always going to be inferior to everyone in any room that I was in and that if there and if people really thought about it a lot of people wouldn't want me in the room and that's something that stays with you and you internalize so that sense of illegitimacy I suppose has never left me Mm. and I guess I found a quasi-inspirational way around that by rejecting (laughs) the uh, the terms of that sort of that identity altogether and and feeling like I don't want to be defined by a job and I don't want to tell people what to do. I just want to be free to be a sort of amorphous, amorphous floating consciousness. <laughs> but I also have to pay my... Yeah, that's such a philosophy graduate answer. Um, I, I do want to stay with that, although it's painful, so thank you for being vulnerable about it. But the thing you didn't mention in childhood is uh, is about race and the experience of racism as a child and one of the most striking sections is about you trying to sandpaper off your skin because of connected to wider self-harm and um a very dark period in your childhood but it we've had various people i've interviewed various people for this about being non-white and the effect of that and it was one of the most striking bits of writing i've ever read on it um as you as you wrote about it for the book did it become clearer to you the effect that that childhood racism has had on you or did you already know no, I already knew. I mean, yeah, the racism that I experienced when I was young was at one end of the spectrum there was attacks and physical incidents and a lot of verbal, verbal abuse. But there was also just this atmospheric racism, which was just the culture and knowing that people didn't want you here. Um, and I was... Yeah, people would tell me to go home, and I I didn't know where home was, and that's a very sort of that throws you into all sorts of existential confusion as a a developing psyche. Um, You've answered it. You you already knew that it had part of that sense of illegitimacy. It seems like comes from there, and I think it's one of the reasons I feel like the, the conversations around identity politics are so frustrating and kind of binary and two-dimensional in the way they happen in public often. What reading your book and various other conversations about these kind of identity questions have done for me has just helped surface how we can't get away from identity and the the idea that if we just all stop talking about the ways that we're different, then it would be fine because we're all the same. When you're looking at the level of formation that having a non-mainstream identity has in childhood and yeah. the way that it has shaped you. It's cellular to the point that I can't articulate it and it's not just because I'm stupid, although I am stupid. <laughs> but yeah, it's something that lives in me so deeply that I can't find words for it. Um, and it's frustrating to be in a milieu where everyone is so fluid and articulate and able to speak about their experience and I, there are, and I have a lot of feelings about this but I, I can never really fully convey to someone what it's 
like to know that to know that you're not wanted and you'll never be worthy or wanted and you'll never belong and you have nothing to say and you shouldn't open your mouth it's almost impossible to get through those things even as an adult <laughs> it's good Sorry. for a podcast though isn't it no <laughs> it's not I just want to give you a big cuddle are you okay to carry on yeah okay thanks just both having a little weep um I I hope you already know this but I don't think any of those things about you and the reason that your book is so powerful is that in saying those things you I think will give voice to a lot of people who feel the same way um yeah it's an extraordinary brave and brilliant thing that you're doing um so i think it probably will have been for some people who have been rick fans for a long time who've read your hilarious columns in the guardian about kitchen gadgets sort of laced with sexual innuendo and Mm. witticism well i wrote an article about depression and particular conversation with my mother and how i changed my relationship with my mother and people like that, and the article did quite well. So I was approached by publishers. This is the, quite, this is the sort of mechanistic answer, That's which okay. is not, probably not what you're looking for. And then I got on age, and then we sold the, the book. And then I was, I was, oh, now I have to actually write a book. And I didn't know how to do that, because I'd only written sort of tiny births, and now I was being asked to run a marathon. And I, But I liked the, I like putting myself in situations that I know nothing about in a strange way, and sort of, like that thing with my mother, just trying to make it up in my way and not feel like I had to prove myself in a field where I had expectations on me. I, I like doing things I have no right to and no no right to be there and no history of, and just new new challenges. So I wanted to... Well, people write about mental health and depression, and it's quite depressing most of the time, understandably. And I wanted to set myself the challenge of writing about it in a way that was full of writing about death and trauma in a way that was full of life and spirit. Because that's equally part of my experience as well as pain is, you know, great joy of living. I love being alive. And again, that imp of the perverse, I suppose I wanted to write a comedy about child abuse (laughs) if I could, because that's not a thing you really meant to. I want to, I, I'm always looking to see what things are possible, especially things that you're told or accustomed to thinking of not possible. I was, I'm always trying to sort of dig away at that surface and see, well, maybe there's a, maybe, maybe there's a way into this. Yeah. It does feel like how we talk about mental health in public is one of the few kind of good news stories of the last five years of the, you know, bin fire of general public debates what have you have you personally having watched that having struggled with your mental health really from very early what's the effect of seeing the kind of stigmatizing die down and more and more people be vulnerable in public about their mental health again i have this very perverse instinct which is that it's amazing that people are now talking about their mental health and the stigma has died down but I have two reactions to it. Uh, one is that it's so 
in a less acknowledged way, it's very class-laden, this access to a less stigmatized space of talking about mental health. And actually, there are so many people still left behind in that. Um, but because they're not in the conversation, we don't even think of them. Um, so speaking about, just for, as one example, men, but also men from, in my case, an Asian background. So those kind of more, less atomized societies or cultures where there's more emphasis on the family as a good aspect to it, but it also means that there can be a lot more shame about talking about this sort of thing. So you don't get the same stories coming from those backgrounds a lot of the time. It's very sort of white, often middle-class, liberal. Mm. That's who we're hearing from, which is good, and their stories are equally valid, but it's just one mm. part of it. And my other reaction, which is um, part of the book, is that think we can get very attached to labels and find them comforting and that's fine and good but for me I always wanted to hang on to that self that would always kick free of those labels and and hang on to the mystery that is human experience and not be like well I have this this is my past this is my disorder these are my outcomes this is how I move beyond it because those that's sort of meaningless to me and that's mm. There is yeah. often a kind of neat narrative shape to these things, isn't there? Yeah. People talk about their failures once they're well past them and they talk about their struggles once they're out of them. And um, I think it can just create a false psychogeography of life, <laughs> you know, what, what a life is supposed to feel like, what, you know, you're supposed to have a temporary struggle and battle through with perseverance and then come out into the promised land yes. of success or health or marriage or, you know, whatever is the thing that you are longing for and not reaching yeah and that idea of a journey which is sort of is so powerful to us symbolically but you know we sort of forget our the lived experience moment to moment sort of contains everything yeah. and i could feel with you i could feel you wrestling with it in the final chapter this sense of i'm supposed to conclude this <laughs> you know i'm supposed to give a sense of narr narrative completeness but you know the perverse impish yeah. in a really helpful way but it's like no <laughs> so yes. it's, not, well, it's not the end I'm not fixed yeah <laughs> the struggle is real the struggle continues yes what's that um, there's that Virginia Woolf amazing Virginia Woolf quote which is uh, I'm going to almost certainly get it wrong now but it's let a man stand up and say behold this is the truth Instantly, I perceive a sandy cat filching a piece of fish in the background. Look, I say, you have forgotten the cat. That's pleasingly weird. <laughs> yeah, but it's so it speaks so powerfully to me that, that there's always another angle. It's like those that geometry of our perception is infinitely divisible. Yeah. There's always another angle, and there's always another truth. And I, I really hang on to that. So I'm going to segue from truth to religion. Um, nice uh, and what's funny is in myself I can feel this resistance because which is strange because your book you've written about sexual abuse you've written about sex you've written about everything and I feel more comfortable asking you about those things than I do about the fact that in there is a sense of spiritual yearning or search for meaning and we've talked about it a few times you know why is it so hard to talk about why does it feel like you need to have kind of secret conversations up on the side where you're like, actually, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the possibility of God or, you know, is it possible to just walk into a Quaker meeting or whatever it is? Why, why is the human instinct towards kind of existential questions so often suppressed? Mm. 
What's more embarrassing to talk about, God or sex, do you think? Sorry, uh, I do yeah, have no, a question. What? <laughs> I mean, I think sex is now much easier to talk about. There's a, yeah. a theologian called Luke Bretherton who has, in his book recently, talked about, you know, it, religion's all right now as long as it's behind closed doors between consenting adults, but <laughs> bring it into the street and you'll be looked at like a flasher. You know, it, it's yeah. that real sense of like, that 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 becomes what is subversive and shocking. Mm. And doesn't reflect the reality of so many people's lives, which mm. is that faith is yeah. crucial to so many people, but we just... We're taught not to wear it, and not working mm. in the field, mm. I, yeah. I mean, I try to flirt with it and sort of suggest it, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's not something you're meant to wear overtly because it will turn people off or they'll yeah. think it doesn't belong there. And, yeah. um, what was the question? Why, why is it hard, Rick? Why is it's it hard to talk fix, about God? Fix the problem for me. Why is it hard to talk about God or big abstract existential? I mean, I think God is the is the is the centre of it, but around it even prayer or we're getting more comfortable with ritual now. It feels like ritual's got uh, somehow transitioned over into the cool, like safe box where mm. mindfulness sits, you know, meditation. This, it, it, it does feel like there's, you know, there's like faith adjacent things that we're comfortable with, <laughs> but actual belief or actual sincere practice that isn't mm. just part of a general kind of wellness self-improvement program yeah. is suspicious. And yeah, I think because it's dangerous, because there isn't that safety valve of rationality or explaining something away and saying, well, it's meaningful, but that's probably because it reduces cortisol or it's good. We're meant to, as a species, be in, in each other's company. These are, there is no rational ground for what, for God. <laughs> so where does, where does it have a, it's like we have these chemical receptors in our culture, which are only open to certain sort of shapes of pollen. And so some, some of the flowers can get in, but not all of them. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's just a very risky and scary but fundamental. It's like a fire we can't... It's like a fire we can't look directly into. Mm. So we sort of just enjoy the light it gives off and the heat. But that's not the fire. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, li- I like the idea of chemical receptors that are only open to a certain sort of pollen. I've talked around this with a few people. One of was Matthew Taylor and about the kind of formation of our culture, which I would disagree with you that religion has nothing to do with rationality, but certainly mm. the, the the definition of what truth is or what evidence is, or even what kind of real is or reliable is, is very, is very extremely narrow, much more narrow than most people actually live and function by. But the, what faith, what, religious practice and belief can do I think is form your literally your cognition in a certain kind of way and if you've not been formed that way it is literally like someone's talking nonsense to you and it sort of bounces off yeah but this is their house and if they want you to take your shoes off you have to take your shoes off (laughs) who's they that sounds so terrifying and Orwellian (laughs) well I guess yeah people with brains form differently um, I guess the culture, the stories we tell, our entertainment, mm. our, our media, yeah. the the narratives that we feel like we are meant to slot ourselves into. Yeah. You have reinvigorated me to tell different, better stories, to shape with the culture differently. Um, I am going to ask you one final question, which is, uh, in your experience as a journalist and as a writer and as an actor, uh, what 
works when you encounter someone different from you or who disagrees with you and rather than just sort of giving up on them or whacking them what helps build understanding or even just keep a conversation going across difference uh, whacking them's good i think get in there early because <laughs> all connection is doomed to disappointment uh well i guess i don't see any humility around um and i guess that's because we like our heroes to be unconflicted and to show us the way and it's quite infantile i think mm. i think a better sense certainly what i try and keep with me is a a sense that we both we both might be wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably are wrong because that's sort of integral to our idea of how knowledge progresses <laughs> is that all this will be overturned so it's interesting the conversation is interesting rather than it's not a tug of war where you're trying to get the one side to fall over it's like what's this rope made out of and what are the tensions in it on that beautiful and profound metaphor We will finish. Rick, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.